Hey, before we dive in, I just want to talk to you about something. You know, I recently hired an intern, which, you know, huge power trip. But I got to tell you, it was a pain in the butt to find this person. I had to talk with a couple different schools. I had to fill out a whole bunch of applications. I had to go through a ton of candidates to find someone who I thought was really great. And by the way, shout out to Kaylee Raglan, who's been absolutely crushing it for me. She's doing an unbelievable job. But, you know, it took a lot of time to find her. And what I should have done is I should have just gone to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job sites, but they don't stop there with their powerful matching technology. ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and actively invites them to apply for your job. ZipRecruiter makes hiring efficient and effective with features like screening questions to filter candidates and an all-in-one dashboard where you can review and rate your candidates. So you got to do this. You got to go ZipRecruiter.com. And I'm, I'm going to give you a little tip because it's going to make me look good here. Go to www.ZipRecruiter.com slash Zach. That's my name, Z-A-K. Make sure you spell it correctly and check it out. If you need to hire someone, if you're looking to bring someone on board, don't waste time doing the usual recruiting nonsense. Go to ZipRecruiter.com and get the job done there. Okay, I'm done talking. I've talked way too long. Let's go. Here we go. Let's dive in. The Zach Kuhn Show. Episode 46, season number two. We took a little break at the end of December, a little much-needed vacation, a little rest, but we're back stronger than ever. And what what a guest we have to kick things off with the first episode of 2021. Andrew Stone is the head of Chug Music, one of the most successful and legendary entertainment companies out of Australia. His roster of artists includes Shepard, Lime Cordial, Mia Rodriguez, basically some of the biggest acts coming out of Australia today. He also just started a brand new record label called City Pop Records. We talk all about it. Andrew is, I mean, he's a fascinating dude. I love what he's doing out of Australia. It's incredible to see. It's incredibly inspiring. By the way, he has teamed up at different parts in his career with some of the biggest managers in the world, like Scooter Braun and Dre London. I mean, these guys team up with Andrew when they work on Breaking Axe out of Australia. I mean, this is insane. He's the best of the best. I mean, that's we bring you the best of the best on the Zach Kuhn Show. That's, that's what we do. That's how we operate. Okay, I'm so excited that we're back. Season number two. Here we go. The Zach Kuhn Show. Andrew Stone. Let's dive in. Hey, guy. I'm going good. I was just talking with our um, mutual buddy, Michael Chase. He says hello. Oh, yeah. And right. he, want, he wants to know why you haven't sent him anything. He's stuck in quarantine in Australia. And he, and he says everybody's sending him stuff, and Andrew hasn't sent him anything. <laughs> I don't know where he is. I didn't know you could even send anything in. That's the okay. I'll well, I'll I'll plead ignorance. That's yeah, exactly. I feel like that's like Chasey always figured out how to live well. Right before the quarantine, I was always at his place, and I recently learned that he's actually a pretty good cook. He's actually he's a good chef. Yeah, yeah we used to have this like uh, local industry kind of um, barbecue thing before he moved overseas, and uh, he was always trying to trying to present the best dish and so i've got to be competitive and uh but you know he loves his uh loves his rubs and his marinades and things like that so he's i think like moving to nashville was a was a good challenge for him as well because he's got to keep up with you guys is there a thing like i'm just kind of thinking about this like i feel like there's kind of a thing in america like 
even if, if you go from like Texas to Nashville, there might be a little bit of a stigma attached to that. Maybe not, a, you know, it's probably BS, but maybe a little bit. Is there a thing like if you go Australia to America or Australia to London, is there a little bit of a stigma attached to that? I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty normal to do that. I think Australia, we're so out of the way. And I think everyone thinks that we're really out of the way. And when you go to America or spend some time in LA, New York, Nashville, London, you really feel like you're the center of everything as opposed to everyone having to adjust their time zones to get up early or get up late to try and make things happen. I find like spending time in the States, you just feel like you're the, at the center of the world in a weird way. It's a, it's such a weird feeling. And then, uh, so I think Australia's got this like, like completely removed other side of the world feel about it. Like, especially from the perspective of being in those countries. Um, so I, I guess the stigma is like, you're just going over to get shit done. And, um, and that's, that's what it kind of feels like when, when, when anyone travels, but so, yeah, you know, is nice that, place. is that, cause I think even in like Nashville, for example, like I, something I kind of like about Nashville is that it's a little bit off the beaten path, maybe compared to LA. And I yeah. feel like Australia has got to have that. So like, there's something cool about there's stuff that kind of bubbles under the surface in Nashville. That I think yeah. hosts find about find out about late, and there's something very yeah. cool about how you can get stuff done here and you can kind of operate in your own world and, and do stuff. I mean, do, do you kind of, is that something you like about Australia? That on one hand it's a little out of the way, but on the other hand, it kind of you can kind of develop yeah. and operate under the table a little bit. I think so. I mean, it's very easy to get caught up in the Australia bubble, as I'm sure it is about the national bubble. So you can definitely feel yeah. like you're a big fish in a small pond. An artist can feel like you're a big fish in the small pond. They're killing it on, you know, radio in their local hometown, and then you get a whole new breath of energy when America discovers it or Europe discovers it or something like that. But it's easy to get complacent. Like I know artists that will get to like that festival slot at Splendor in the Grass in Australia, and they'll think that they've made it, and they just stop working, and like the the journey is just beginning. And I think that's the. I think you got to got to try to make that international leap pretty early um, to to really get like the biggest market in the world, which is the States, like on board. And that's a grind. Like people don't realize, people just think you can kind of do the Nashville thing and apply the same principles for all of America or all of Europe or all of wherever. I think America is like 15 different countries all wrapped into one. And every single and how you view it on like, the when over in Australia, do you look at us and you just think we're 15 different countries? <laughs> uh, no, I think I think most people think it's just one country. It's just blanket. Like it, whatever you see in Hollywood, whatever you see on the news, that's that's it. But I think when you spend any amount of time in America, it feels like 15 different countries because even though there is some kind of consensus, like especially in the music space, there's all these local pockets of activity. Right. It's hard to make sense of it. And you can be a big band in America and never really get on the national radar. You can kind of sail along doing like 300, 500 capacity rooms and no one really knows you on a national scale. Um, but in Australia, there's only like five places you can play. So I think with the small countries or the smaller territories, um, you have a bit of a in order to kind of be somewhat successful, you have to kind of get to that like 1500, 2000 cap room level as quickly as possible. Because before that you're working at McDonald's like in your spare time. But I think a musician in the States can like have a pretty good career like playing at that like small to mid-sized 
room and consider themselves a full-time musician, but perhaps they stop striving as much to break through to that next level. So I do think the artists that end up exporting from territories like Australia are the ones that have, you know, built a critical mass. They've just had to get to a certain level. So when they do export, it seems brand new to people in America or to media in America, but they've got their shit together because they've been doing it to get to that level. And I think once you can get, you can get 1500, 2000 people in a, in a room anywhere in the world, that product's got to be good. And so I think you can sell yourself on that. Um, the fact that you can, you can like motivate a certain percentage of the population in that town to come out and see you. When you start working with Shepard, and I'm, I, yeah. I knew you were with them early on, but did you bring them into the club phase or were they already playing clubs when you started working with them? No, so they, were, they weren't playing at all. They, were they weren't of, playing at all. So yeah. how quickly did it take to get them into the club phase? And then how quickly after that did you start having like international conversations with them? So um, Shepard are a really strange example of like, of their trajectory because I think their trajectory is built off hit songs. Like even before Geronimo, they had this song, Let Me Down Easy, which um, went double platinum in Australia. And it was a commercial radio success here. And an independent band having a commercial radio success hadn't happened in 20 years. So the, the interesting part of that is that a commercial radio audience tends not to be a club audience. Uh, so they're not the kind of people who want to go out there and discover something. There's something, they're a certain part of the population who enjoy listening to songs kind of passively on the radio. They'll know their songs. Um, yeah. And, and then they, and so Shepard kind of went from playing like very, very small kind of showcasey type shows to playing, um, you know, big, like, uh, outdoor festival stages. I think that there was never really that that middle middle moment because it just went from zero to like to to a big event. But I also think that hurt us in our in our live trajectory as well because we didn't build that that like club club stage. And and, and, then, they, and then they got used to kind of playing 30,000 capacity festivals, and and so the production of the show like rose to that level. And then when it came to kind of doing our own shows, we had to be very careful about which markets they, they and, and and then it became like a reverse education process for the fan base. Like people who knew Geronimo, Let Me Down Easy, Coming Home, those kind of songs. It took a lot of time to, to tell them about the band as opposed to just the songs. Um, but that said, like, because it is a commercially successful band, we would do really well at like, you know, family picnic days on the green, that type of thing. Um, and and it would do really well on like TV main events, that kind of stuff. And I think a lot of like commercial pop artists until they get to that like Bieber level or that real like young fandom level, they have that same kind of problem. Um, whereas you could have a band like Lime Cordial that their bread and butter was building up 200 to 300 to 400 to 500 shows just consistently nonstop. And then the success commercially comes later. And did you yeah. think like when you were building Lime Coriel, like were you thinking, okay, at some point we're gonna need to pull in an international partner? And it, I know like like Dre London kind of was in Australia and then he met with you guys and he kind of put it himself in. But were you looking for a partner coincidentally, or were you thinking we're gonna need to pull someone in? And same with Shepard with Sphere Braun, like were you ready for that partner? 
or did they just kind of come in at the right time? I think they just, they, both both Scooter and Dre are very capable business people and they saw an opportunity in both instances. I think Dre less so. I think Dre heard the band, loved the band and has been on such a ride with Posty that um, he knew that he was capable at, at opening doors and, and doing what he needed to do. Um, but it's never something that we really think strategically about because to get to those kind of people, it's not about pushing. It's all about... They've got uh, to come to you. Yeah, yeah. And, and and Scooter was like, I think Scooter saw Geronimo and just heard it and went, okay, this is a smash. But also saw that it was on radio in Australia for like 20 weeks straight at, like at number one and doing real volume and hadn't broken through internationally. And I think his mindset um, was this song connects it's like it's just it's just maths if he can put this song that's clearly going to connect and has connected in a territory like australia which is like demographically very similar to you know the broader united states um it just makes logical sense that 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 song could could have the legs that it did um and with dre i think um so we've we're, we're not working with either dre or scooter anymore um just because like coronavirus has kind of like messed everything up. All of our plans that we had with Dre kind of got put uh, put upside down this year. Um, and he's like focusing on his on his core clients as well. So um, I think his trajectory with Lyme was just because he was a he's a he's a Brit as well. He loves that kind of songwriting style. He loves bands, um, and he's found himself working with with rappers and and kind of like rap pop superstars and i think his bread and butter is like oasis and, and stuff like that and you wouldn't yeah, yeah. you wouldn't pick it but he loves it and um i mean lime cordial is just such a compelling band if you see them live as well they've got such a such a broad catalog of music and and i think we both came to the realization that in order for them to properly build in a territory like america we needed to put the time in put you know go out there and play the club shows, go out there, play the big supports. We were in the middle of a big support tour when, uh, when we had to come home um, and just keep putting one foot in front of the other um, to kind of get to where they would naturally. Because you can also build a culture around a band and then you've got those early adopter fans that want to jump in and, and spread the word. And that was the way that Lime built, which is probably the complete opposite to the way that Shepard Shepherd was built. Well, they did so. it the old school way in the clubs. I was yeah. reading an interview, I think it was in the music with you, where, where you had said that like one of the things you always recommend or that you always do is you always try to find case studies. And you look at a lot of case studies. Do you remember any case studies you were looking at with Lime Cordial? Like, were there any uh, acts that you were trying to look at to say like, like we've got to kind of replicate what's, what this person did or this act did? Um, I think I think Tash Sultan is a good case study. Uh, I think Courtney Barnett, is a good case study. Um, they're acts that don't really have a big breakthrough song, but they've got a really strong culture around them. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, in a weird way, it's like we we, ne we never really think of you can kind of just like think about like some of the, the jam bands in America that do so well as well. It's like you build this like culture around the artist. Um, from the merchandise to the experience of the show to 
um, the the type of you know the type of social media engagement that they have, and as long as you can keep consistently releasing music to that audience, I think uh, you don't need a hit song to to break it through. If you do get one, that's that's a bonus. But that's the icing on top. Um, yeah, and that can kind of really push it push it hard into the into the mainstream. But in terms of case studies, like you look at the way that Tash has been able to just build huge audiences internationally. Like Red Rocks, I think is um, a show she played recently in, in the States. Um, and she's never had a radio hit and she's never had a breakthrough, but everyone knows about her because of the, maybe she's had a bit more of an online following than, than what Lime have, but um, it's kind of a word of a mouth, word of mouth association. Same with Courtney as well. It's like people know her because she's prolific. The show is fantastic. Uh, and she just gets out there and plays show after show after show. And it's like the, the old model of tour around an EP or an album, then wait nine months and then come back and maybe do the next single tour. Right. That's yeah. just out the door with all of those acts. Like you, it doesn't matter if you've got a show on sale, you put another show on sale. So people have another opportunity to discover you. And so when we changed agents actually a couple of years ago, they couldn't believe that that was the strategy that we were going to employ with Lime Cordial because the, the typical model is that it's like two or maybe three times a year. Um, don't oversaturate the market. But I feel that if you're a developing act, there's no such thing as oversaturating, oversaturating the market because there's always an opportunity to play to new people, always an opportunity to, for people to bring you along, uh, to bring along their friends get involved and um, and we'd see people kind of coming to every single show that we'd put like, you know, once or twice a month, which puts pressure on the band as well to switch keep it up, up the material, switch it up a little bit, make, but also just make sure that the live show is, is entertaining. And if you've got an entertaining product, then why not, why not like put it into market? Um, but I understand that that's like, it can be a bit, nervy for promoters and agents to, to kind well, of it's really them. because when i was doing a lot of promotion before the pandemic it's really interesting how i was trying to book shows and agents would say no we played six months ago or we're not ready to play that market again and then six months later i try to book that act and that agent again would say no or we're still holding off on the play we're not ready to play and a year goes by two years go by and now we're in this pandemic and I'm kind of like, you yeah. should have just played that show because it was your last opportunity. Yeah. Like, what do like you have yeah. to lose? <laughs> I really think that I, I, I really think momentum is such a big word at the moment, like with respect to developing artists. Um, like so, so building the engine for the artists, building their songwriting engine, their recording engine, making sure that they can consistently release product. But then like getting momentum, as soon as you have momentum, that's the hardest thing to to get it's the hardest thing to um to 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 generate out of nothing effectively like you could have a, a hot like again the, the shepherd story is interesting because they had written those songs and didn't get picked up on radio until 12 months after they were released so getting that first breakthrough moment is really really hard it's something that um it's hard to kind of you can reverse engineer it with case studies and looking at other the way other people do things and trying to create those moments uh, however you however you can. But once you have it, it's important to just never let go and never stop. Because I've seen cases where an artist has gone three, four years between drinks and then 
the, the expect the audience to be there or expect the demographic of the radio station that previously supported them to be there. And the radio station has changed music directors. It's changed demographic, uh, you know, targets. Um, the fan base that was there three years ago and now three years older and, you know, maybe have kids now or something like that that don't go out to shows as much. So it just, it's just so important to once you, once you kind of keep it to, to hold onto it. And, um, and yeah, so I don't know where that question came from, but. Is um, that like, do you have to have that car? Like if you're managing an act and like all of a sudden the act is like, we're going to get married, we're going to have kids, we're going to take a year. Like that's got to be a nightmare for you. I mean, do you say, guys, look, I don't know what you're talking about. We got to keep this momentum going. Yeah, uh, it's a very hard conversation. I definitely had that conversation. It hasn't always gone well. Um, but like, unfortunately, some acts have like suffered the consequences of it as well. Uh, I think the, the most common example is when a band changes band members um, and they take a year off to, you know, find the right person who slots in and that disrupts the songwriting because they might be arguing with the new bass player or the old yeah. bass player or something like that. That's happened a bunch of times. Um, yeah, family has gotten in the way, but I think if you can plan effectively, and that kind of comes down to, and really it's all about the bloody songs at the end of the day. Um, if you've got 60 songs in the bag ready to go, uh, and you can kind of whittle it down to 10 and just schedule them in like once every one every three months for the next five years, then you can take time and you can, you can kind of have periods of intense activity and then set it all up and then you know, have the team around you uh, build it out um, and pick and choose the moments that, that you need the time off for to, to, you know, if it's starting a family, then you can do that. But um, yeah, it's very strategic because I think given that we're in the entertainment business, nobody owes us a thing. No one owes us fans or, or attention or streams or buying. Like pe people have lots of things to spend their money on. Um, unless we're, unless we provide a compelling reason for them to come to the show or listen to our music, then they're just going to go with something else. And, uh, and yeah, you might be able to build up some loyal fans that'll give you a pass for maybe a bit longer than, than others will. But again, two, three, four years go by then very, very rare. Although I think once you're at like like superstar level or kind of like arena level, you can do like all the rules are out the window again because yeah. you can then play play up to that, you know, mysterious, I'm taking time off and, you know, come back in five years time with a new album. You can that's do that. A, thing. That's such a weird thing that I have such a hard time figuring out how some acts can be, like Taylor Swift, even though now she's kind of putting out a lot of music, Taylor Swift's one who can be yeah. so mysterious and it works for her. I'm like, why does it work for her? And then other acts don't have that, even other big acts don't quite have that luxury. Of, yeah. of being mysterious. It's interesting how some can pull it off and others can't really do I it. Think, <laughs> I think it helps to be unpredictable as well. I think the folklore release was genius because even though her core audience might not have appreciated that album as much as her pop records, uh, it kept people guessing. And if you can keep people guessing and change, change like tact, um, what people don't want is the same record you just released, but just a bit worse. Uh, people don't want that at all uh, because that, they go, oh, well, you know, they've kind of done their dash now. Um, there's not much, there mustn't be much, that much more left in the tank. It's no longer exciting. So 
you can put out a slightly worse record if it's like a shift on a theme or you can change direction and you and you could do like a conceptual thing over here and make a deliberate move and people will still be excited for the next thing that you release and the next thing that you release but you just go the you know the same old route and it's not as good then that's a really dangerous place for an actor to be in i think hey everyone thanks for tuning in i hope you're enjoying the episode some of you may know that I run an industry newsletter called The Nashville Briefing. It really takes you to the front row of everything happening in Music City and the global music industry at large. So if you're interested in subscribing, go to nashvillebriefing.com to check it out. Okay, back to the show. How do you discover Mia Rodriguez? Did you discover her on TikTok? Like, were you swiping on TikTok and did you see a video of hers? Yeah, I, I didn't know about TikTok when um, when we started working with Mia, um, which was probably good because maybe it meant that we kind of were a little bit, a little bit more blasé about the whole situation. But she was uh, like a mutual friend um, of one of our staff uh, knows her knows her father or something like that. Like I think that was the that was the pathway, and she'd just been given this stupid contract by some you know kind of churn and burn label in in the uk and i think they knew of us so they asked advice and we went what are you doing don't sign that whatever you do then when we dug a bit deeper um she hadn't released any original music she just had this i think she had like a million on tiktok at the time um and no one really had a sense of how important tiktok was because it was just musically ported into this new Right. software um so we just liked her for her um for her voice for her image the fact that she knew about her fan base um was able to engage with the fan base and we and we to be fair we were already set up to be looking for that type of artist just and city pop records was already you had set this up and you were saying okay well, now we've got this label we've got to go out and find some acts yeah yeah so it, it wasn't announced yet but like the there was a clear like it actually came about a year before that, the conception of it all um, being, we have, we've had such a tough time with like acts in their mid twenties or thirties trying to engage with social media and speak to their audiences. Um, yet you go to, you go to VidCon, which is like the YouTube um, you know, sponsored thing with creators and there's musicians there. So the starkest difference, I don't think I've ever told this story, but the starkest difference was, um, we've got this big conference in Australia called Big Sound, which is our equivalent to our South by Southwest, like all the ANRs from international fly in, industry from Australia. It's like the big meeting melting pot. And there's something like 180 acts to play over the course of four days. And it's pretty hard to get a spot. Like everyone jostles for position, like they, they, they hype each other up. They're like, uh, you know, in, send out invites. They spend money on their production, trying to get the attention of, you know, especially the internationals that are in town. And there's a open to the public uh, part of that as well. Um, and I remember going to VidCon, I think it was the, the week before Big Sound. And there was these uh, kind of cover artists on YouTube or on Instagram who were, um, who, who were there like speaking on speaking on panels and doing meet and greets with fans and and various stuff like that 
Um, and I'd never heard of them. And I kind of checked out their channel. They had maybe like half a million subscribers or, or whatever it is. And I was like, oh, it's pretty cool. And it could be like a piano artist or just a yeah, just right. a general run of the mill kind of cover artist that knows how to engage with the audience. And I looked at it and they had like 500 kids lined up, like out the door, around the corner to meet them. And they spent like hours just like meet and greet, like, here we go, like, what are you doing? Shouting out people. Like they spent the whole time just meeting with these fans. And these, these like kids were like in tears because they got to meet their, their artists. And I went and checked out their music. I'm like, what's this about? And it was like recorded on an iPhone. The, the songs weren't very good. The, like clearly had never like worked with professional producers or even like videographers or, or stylists or, or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, and yet they were able to curate this audience of like kids like at, at a conference lined up out the door and then i went to big sound the week after to see like the the new buzz band and there was like three people in the audience and they the band's up there kind of staring at their shoes going oh you know this sucks don't know why we're doing it anyway whatever i'm gonna go home like didn't give it didn't give rat's ass about I don't know if I can swear. Didn't give a yeah, say, say anything about, you want. <laughs> yeah, uh, about uh, their audience. They'd made no effort to promote the shows. They they just expected. They, they had this like sense of entitlement that like by being on Big Sound, people should come to them and um, they should get a spot on Triple J or a support act here right. or a manager yeah, yeah. find them. Uh, yet you've got these creators who are taking. Like none of them have managers, none of them have labels, none of them have anyone helping them, but they're taking their future in their own hands and speaking to their audiences. And so the idea behind City Pop was here you have like the best marketing team you could possibly hope for built into the artist already. And it's a full-time gig and they're, they're so good at it. They're, they're natives uh, with the platform. They understand, like speaking to Mia, she knows whether something's going to work on TikTok or on Instagram or, or whatever it is, because it's the trend right now or whatever, or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, you know, six months ahead before we even understand what she's talking about. She's do so you ever give her advice or do you ever like coach her a certain way with a post or do you basically, when it comes to that part of it, you just let her do whatever she does? Uh, it's, it's, she educates us a lot on what is going to work. And what doesn't like i mean our general approach to social media is this is kind of what we want to say can you please put it in your words and figure out how to get your audience like let's say we're promoting a new single it's like how do you think we should promote it to your audience what's the kind of stuff that we like this is what we might do with another artist how is this going to gel with your artist put it in your words and it could be something as simple as like you know just dodgy like real close up like funny like comedic posts like go like my song or something like that um or not as obvious as that it's like oh my god like this is this is taking off this is great like things like that that a typical marketing person or label would never be able to coach an artist to do um which is speak nat naturally with their with their audience and the reason that audiences care because they they crave authenticity and the creators know that they crave authenticity so you know, I've heard at those conferences, for example, those VidCon conferences, um, that sometimes creators get corralled into only meeting with a certain amount of 
like 20 fans or something that have signed up to the sponsors main, you know meet and greet thing and they're just like fuck that i'm gonna go and talk to the people who support me every day on on the platform and i don't care how long that takes because that that's 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 why i'm here and you try and tell a marketing person to label that and it blows their mind like again you know at most labels they they work on an act for a fucking week and then that's that's it they never really dig deep and understand what what it's all about but these kids live and breathe it um so we just with city pop we kind of went why don't we apply the principles that work for our commercial artists now our mainstream not like not mainstream mainstream but like our frontline music acts what if we were able to create an incredible video for Mia, as opposed to just like a, a TikTok that she's done on her, on her phone. Cause I find that a lot of those creators, when they try to make the transition to music and releasing songs, they skip the part where they need to write a good song and they skip the part where they need to put out a good video. Right. And so media, media looks at it and they go, Oh, it's just a, it's just a creator thing. All right. That's going to go away. No one likes it on Spotify because it's not a very good song. And I've heard about and I've seen huge creators that might be like big makeup creators or something try to make the shift to music, and it's no really one's hard. giving them good, well, no one's giving them good advice about whether they should re, they they should release those songs. So we will go through like a hundred, two hundred songs from here before we settle on something that um, that we like. And she's ruthless with it as well. Like she'll write with writers, she'll she'll work up stuff herself. We'll get submissions from different um, different songwriters around the world as well. And, uh, you know, it has to feel right for her. But to me as credit and to our other artists' credit, they listen to me and our team with respect to, is this song any good? And um, and I think that's the thing that we tried to, tried to marry those two things. I try to marry like, like half-decent A&R, great like like creative like mainstream creative approach which costs money and takes investment um and then the magic that is whatever mia gives to her audience and that could be you know comedy skits it could be going live with fans the thing that she's built up herself you can't teach that i don't think and it's you certainly can't teach a 30 year old to do it um and unless they fully embrace it and really give it a lot of time. But Mia's been doing it for five years. And so it's, it's a, it's a, so we're just coming at it from a different angle. If that makes sense. So the mantra of city pop records is look, we're going to let the artists do what they're already doing. We're going to, we're not going to be better at running her TikTok account than she is at running her TikTok account. We're going to come in and do everything else. When she needs to tour America, when she needs to go to the UK, when you know when yeah. she needs a music video, that's what we're going to be here for. That's what we're going to help with, and we're going to let them do everything else on the digital side because they're going to do it best. Exactly. That's that's exactly like we should put that on our website. Like, um, that, look, I'll bill you for this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, like Mia said to me, like she doesn't. She's always wanted to be a singer. Like that was the other things. Like she was clear with her intention that like she's kind of she did TikTok to. To eventually do music she was like i don't want to be internet famous i want to be red carpet famous is this like a big 
Um, like this is badass. So not you start, start your own label? I mean, you've been with Chug Music for a while running that and working over there, but like starting City Pop Records, you got this in your signing acts. This is like pretty badass, isn't it? Like this is pretty fun. This yeah, is- I mean, it's, it's, with Chuggy, it's been a great run. I mean, um, so we, we, I guess we, I've been with him for like almost a decade now. Um, I became a partner in the, in the Chug Music business a few years ago as well. And I think- How did you, I was that, talking with um, a manager last week and he, on this podcast, and he said, when he started working for his first um, mentor, he said to him, if I'm not partner in three years, I'm going to quit. That's what this guy said. So three years, yeah. I want to be partner. I'm going to quit. I, I, did you approach Chuggy? And you were like, Chug, listen to me, man. We got to bring me on. Like, I've been working with you for years. I've been crushing him for you. I, bring me on as an equal. But like, like, how do you become partner with him? Because he's a legend. Like, he's he's the totally. guy. Totally. Like, he's he's a really inspirational guy. And it, it happens so naturally, to be honest. Like, um, the other part of, or the main part of Michael's business is the, the promoting business. And right, of course. Um, that naturally, although that, that ended up, he ended up forming a joint venture with Frontier touring down here in Australia. So the label and the, and the management company uh, attached to that business was just flapping in the breeze. They didn't want to pick it up. And so we were kind of scratching our heads going, well, what are we going to do? Uh, and I said, well, let's keep going and Chuggy wanted to keep going and there was no reason why we shouldn't because the money was there and um, the acts were there and we had catalog and you know, I got, I got pretty lucky to be fair that it was like just at the real like rise of, of Lime Cordial, especially here. Um, so maybe that conversation would have been different a couple of years later, like it would have been a bit harder for me to, to do it. But, um, but then you know, I think Chuggy and I just work really complimentary together. Like I'm, uh, I'm at the shows and I'm tra- able to travel a lot and or when it, when it's not bloody locked down, but, um, and I have good, good friends and relationships, like at a whole lot of different levels of, of the industry with, with my peer group and Chuggy has the just, just epic level, like old school connections. Um, with with anyone who's anyone so when it came to finding an agent for Mia, for instance i mean we had every agent in the world calling michael saying what's going on with Mia rodriguez and we was we're kind of like presented with the the type of uh of talent that wouldn't you know the type of executive talent that would take years of south buyers and all this other shit to try and build up um and so i think Michael really likes the relationship. I really like the relationship. And I had, I had a bunch of other ideas that I kind of wanted to explore as well. So, um, yeah, one being City Pop. And, um, and yeah, so we, we were able to get that deal done and um, move ahead with this, with this new label. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm really fortunate to, to be doing what I'm doing. And I think maybe a bit of it is like survivorship bias, like, I, like I'm still here after like 15 years or whatever. So you, I don't know if it's luck or, or like planning, but I think, I think we've been pretty consistent with the acts that we pick up and um, that, and I also think that to be successful, especially as a manager, you do need a breakthrough act. Uh, you do need an act to kind of get to national touring level and, and, and that kind of psyche. I mean, I, 
I, I do know managers, for instance, who do really well off like a, you know, a club level act. Um, and they just like you work every single dollar, at, you know, <laughs> totally, yeah, totally independently work out a good living for themselves. Like, and, and the act it's, it's like a little cottage industry type thing. Um, but I think we're, you know, we really love like the going for the big, big stuff and working with the best people around the world, making it as big as we possibly can. Um, and, um, and yeah, I also love spending time with, the best in the business as well so yeah, kind of right. want to keep like fueling that for as long as it as, as we can as well and uh trying new stuff and trying to keep up to date with with you know what, what's hot what's not and it presents challenges with respect to like building the teams but um yeah it's, that, like do you think that like when you team up with someone like scooter you team up with someone like dre and that gives you like some insight into sort of some other things that other people are doing and you guys just opened an office in asia if I'm not mistaken, like mm -hmm. is eventually is this and not even eventually it's already kind of happening, but like, is, is this going to be a world thing where you want to be able to break an act globally in house? Or do you kind of think about, let me just master, you know, my demographic or my area and outsource other stuff. Cause someone who lives in a certain place and grew up there is going to be able to work it better than I will. Or do you think, you know, we're going to, we're going to be able to source, you know, internationally on our own. Yeah. I, I think, I think you need to work with good partners and I think it's a little presumptuous, presumptuous of us to think that we can tackle the world, especially out of Australia um, all the time. But that said, the times where we've been let down is usually by team members that aren't as committed as what we are and, uh, and not having a share in that, in that, American story or not. And, and there's always this perception that you need to bring on an American manager to, you know, who understands the market. But I've spent a lot of time in America and it's not that hard. And the managers that I'm friends with, I think have had the same or similar experiences to what we've had with our acts there. And I think a lot of people kind of, um, they don't put themselves in those in those challenging situations so they're never going to learn and if you've got an act that's big everyone kind of comes to you so the jobs the jobs the hard part's getting the act to be big it's not that hard to to make it work it's actually easier to make a big act work than it is to make a little act work right, totally. uh, and so everyone's kind of like laying out the pathways for you the label will help and your, your touring team will help and your lawyer will help everyone will help um so, but if you can build the right team around you, I see no reason why uh, you know executives from around the world can't compete in in every territory, provided you you know approach each territory with respect, and it's not just get a publicist, see if we can get on radio there, and and move on. You've got um, yeah, you got to you got to work it, and I think especially in the states, you got to spend time. Um, I think it takes like three or four national tours before you can properly break through, whereas in Australia, like the the approach tends to be get on Triple J or on commercial radio, do one tour and then come back every two years. Like that's, you can kind of do Australia at that level, but the States, like it's so big and people don't understand that it's so sep separated. Each territory is kind of like its own thing. And you can be big in, you know, Seattle, Portland area, and no one is going to come to your show in Texas, and no one will know about you in, on the on the other side of the country. And 
I think that just blows people's minds. They think that they can get one publicist or one radio plugger to work their record throughout the states, but it's 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 a slow, long grind. And I think like I'm a big fan of the independent like record label management company kind of model. Um, but I think the one area, the one territory you really do need help, like financially more than anything is, is America because it is just so vast to do a radio campaign in America costs million dollars. hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, and, and unless you are, I guess like, a um, unless you've had a big streaming breakthrough, um, I think probably the best example is, um, what's his name? I've forgotten. Um, Lauv, like, oh, unless yeah. you're like Lauv, right? Huge stream breakthrough, 100 million streams. You can then fund a commercial radio strategy. Totally fine with that. But without that, if, you try, yeah, if you're trying to build it, um, I think you do need like label expertise to, to manage that tra trajectory. But I don't think you need an American manager. I don't think you need a whatever. That said, if you're a brand new manager starting out and you don't have any experience in America whatsoever, you do need an American manager and you do need to get involved. Um, I think if you're not willing to go and put in the effort yourself to learn the market and to spend time with the band over there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to kind of get to that point. I get it. But like, once you're there, I think you can kind of hold on and, and try and make it work. Totally. Yeah. That's the place to strive for when you're playing together, putting together the uh, ARIA performances. Like I love the performance that Lime Cordial gave this year on the ARIAs. By the way, I was up till four in the morning watching that thing. Um, awesome. Thanks. That was, um, it was, it was so great. It was fun. And I, I just love the band, man. They're so cool. But do you put a lot of thought and um, like, do you think about that performance a lot? Do you bounce around a lot of ideas or are they just like, okay, guys, we're going to be colorful and we're going to get up there and play the song and, and that'll, that'll be good. Uh, I mean, that, that performance in particular, there was a lot of back and forward. Um, the, like even things like set design, um, so it was a, kind of like a vintage retro kind of vibe. It was, it was very cool. We did make a conscious choice, um, a conscious choice a couple of months ago. So with this album, with this album, right, um, the plan was that like previous album was kind of like surfy, indie, Triple J, alternative, kind of like a bit of a rap bag kind of band. But if you ever see a Lion Cordial show, it's like 10 songs. Like I think I've had eight, eight, <coughs> Eight songs are now like gold or platinum now in their catalog. Um, you go to a live show, it's like banging after banging after banging after banging. The crowd just gets euphoric by the end of it. Um, but we wanted to kind of take it away from, we did want them to progress from like big clubs to kind of arenas in this, in this next kind of transition period. So I guess the way we were planning um, is we had Splendor in the Grass main stage and so the whole suited look was like this could be our like arctic monkeys breakthrough moment so let's see if we can shift from that like surfy bands like down at the down at the beach kind of feel to like that arctic monkeys or the strokes kind of presence on stage so it feels like it belongs on a big stage like that and so that kind of came from the creative of the music video was there and shifting the perception of the band over 
So in the audience's mind, they've got this sense that this is a stadium band or this is a, an arena band um, or a main stage festival band, um, as opposed to just like your kind of grassroots rap bag kind of kind of kind of group. So that that aesthetic then like comes into everything that we did in the lead up to the campaign and throughout the campaign into the arias, which was working with a stylist who got us into Vogue and into uh, you know like magazines um, that Lime Cordell has no business being on the cover of GQ or something like that. But hey, they're they, hot guys. They're good looking brothers. But dressed in like a Gucci suit, it's like kind of this cool juxtaposition, right? So um, that was the that was the the kind of transition. And then you open up to this whole new fan base, but it still feels authentically them. Um, and so the main question is like, how do we recreate what we want this record to feel like, what we want people to, the emotional feeling that people should get from a performance like that. Um, and yeah, and so that's the, that's the, that's the process really is like, we work with like really good stylists, production people, like uh, even like the sound guy, the band, our touring team, they, they all, all very attention. intentional. Everything about it, like the look of it, everything is very intentional and very thought out and, and says something. Even if you don't think it's saying something as you're watching it to you, it's giving you some messaging or it's telling you something that you Yeah, you like the quality to has to be 100%. Yeah, and it has to, it has to fit. It has to fit with what, what, what you want people to feel when they see it. Um, and I think that needs to apply with everything. Like, I mean, even if you think about when we first released like the Mia Rodriguez videos, um, you know, she's that's her first ever song that she'd released, but we made the video look like it's a hundred thousand dollar music video because that's the level we want people to come in at from a perception point of view with her. Um, if she looked like it was just like an iPhone video, like every other YouTuber does, um, then people will just dis like you only get that first impression like once and we even graded it so it looked international i mean whatever that means but we graded it so it like kids yeah. compete with like the best shit that's out there and yeah. um and i think again entertainment business like if there's a if there's something better people are going to go and consume that so that attention to detail to try and get that um get that music and the visuals and the relationship with the fans to that level, I think is everything that we should be doing as a label team, as a management team, um, and highlighting the things that it's not, it's really, it's not all us either. I, I don't want to say it's like, it's, it's really just the philosophy of, of how we approach things. It's like, make sure the band feels really solid about that. Enable the team members around the band to feel like they've got to compete with the best stuff that's out there or the most them thing that's out there, um, create their own identity and just, just distill it down. And then our job is to kind of amplify it and build the teams around it. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's it. Yeah. It's intentional. Um, but it's intentional not to make it look just massive. It's intentional to make it look authentic and it's intentional to make it look not intentional. <laughs> yeah it's it it's it's trying to like tease out the thing that you think is the real special element about what the artist is that's such a hard thing to get 
get to the bottom. Like, try, like, why, why do you like this band? Why do you like Post Malone, say? It's not because he's the best singer in the world and does the best, like, yeah, he has great songs and he's a good singer, but it's the emotional feeling that you have about Post Malone, which is what makes him Post Malone. Um, so that's the face tats. That's the extravagant yeah. lifestyle. It's the it's the energy. It's the videos. It's the bigger than life kind of thing. And it's the same with any artist that that, that people love. It's something that's like reflected back at you. Like you see Post, and it's kind of like this mirror desire thing of like you see yourself the way you want to see yourself when you look at Post. There's something about the face tattoos and being a little bit of an outcast, a little bit of a weirdo that connects and you're like, I'm yeah. also a weirdo. I'm also an outcast. You know, there's something to it and he can be the extreme and you can say, I don't have to be that extreme, but I still associate with this. this yeah. I, I think people go at like pe people connect with artists for a whole lot of different reasons. Like it could be escapism, like one night of like feeling that way. It could be, it could be the emotional and the lyrical content and, and the, the connection you might have with, um, it might give you your life perspective because someone else has gone through the things that you are going through or whatever it might be. It could be just wanting to have a badass fun time and that's cool as well and let off some steam. Um, but what I think the face tattoos are all about, um, it's it's signaling and you know, people can have whatever tattoos they want, but I think when you see someone that's got face tattoos that, 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 that like rapper kind of like lifestyle. Yeah, right, right. Or, uh, it, it shows the audience that they're all in, that this is their life, that they're, they're all in. They're not going to fall back on being an accountant or anything like that. You can't come, it's, it's like maybe society's kind of pushed it a bit like that. But when you, when you, like, I think artists, are in a difficult position, but also like a, a position where they have to kind of show that they are the embodiment of that idea, even if they're not like they're the embodiment of the idea from a perception point of view. So the people are able to like come in and, you know, get a taste of it and maybe get like 70% of the way there for like one or two hours and like once a year, that kind of I thing. Yeah, I've never thought about this, but you're right. It says to people that I, I will never be anything other than a rapper and a rock yeah. star. That's what it's saying to people. It's That's it's like it's like screams authenticity. It's like this is what I am. This is who I am. You can you can trust me. These are my lyrics. This is what I do. Um, and there's no there's no feeling of um, yeah of like them going halfway with it at all. And because people don't want to follow people who only go halfway um and i think it's a i think it's a really like setting the scene and setting the tone and being part of a community i think is see, you kind of have to earn your stripes a little bit i mean in the country community as well it's it's similar like if you don't definitely you just come in and like put a banjo in your song you're not a doesn't mean you're a country artist um there's a lifestyle there's like a there's a perception there's a kind of there's almost like a a um uh, a set of core principles that you need to be admitted to the club in a way. Um, and you've got to get your stripes. You've got to, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You can't just like roll on in and expect people to, to dig what you're doing. But, um, yeah. So I, I love thinking about things like 
authenticity and how to pick out the things that are just and i think that's what like someone like dre and scooter are really really good at yeah they're good at honing in on what makes us cool and like dre for instance like he leads a larger than life you know lifestyle as well but it's he's working and what people don't realize is like every step of the way he's working he he might throw a party and have a hundred instagram models there or something but that's a calculated he uh, he's he's gonna get something out of it no it's it's so you've got you know 100 people with a million followers on instagram all having a fun time to the lay person you might go oh they're just hanging around with, with like models um because of because they like hanging around with models it's like no, no no like you want those influential people who are like having a fun time saying that they're having the best time at this particular show with this it's, it's the way that people will involve it and yeah, right. it's cheap for me it's like cheap marketing because you give them a free ticket to the show and they come along and they have a great time um all that stuff's really calculated and maybe it does come naturally to some people but i think that the real areas where people can kind of um you know make a difference in an artist's like perception and career is like areas like that to try and hone in on the emotional connection that people have with that artist yeah absolutely is post malone good at um beer pong <laughs> yeah he's, he's really good he's really he's good like a, a I, I think he's going to be, a, I, I feel like he'd be amazing. I mean, I'm sure he's incredible. I feel like I think he, he practices a lot. That's the he main practices thing. a lot. Andrew, we've covered so much. What have we left out? I mean, I, who is Mason Watts, by the way? I just thought that was a new signing, a new artist you guys are working with, right? Relatively. Yeah, new. Mason, right. Yeah, so we, we signed him the probably like first, first quarter or so of this year and, and he, so he hasn't come from a big social media background, but um, he's he's young, really good looking, charming, charming guy who's just an incredible songwriter. Um, he's also from my hometown. Like we went to the same school like 15 years apart. What's the thing? Because you're from Brisbane, but you moved to Sydney. Is that a popular move? Like, do you want to go into the entertainment business? Does everyone kind of go from, like, do they all go from wherever? Like, could you have done this in Brisbane or... or when you were growing up, you're like, I, I got to get out of Brisbane as fast as possible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Brisbane's a big, small town. Um, it's it's a great it's a great city. Don't get me wrong, but um, Australia isn't that big anyway. Uh, so I kind of it could have been Melbourne, it could have been Brisbane, it could have been wherever. Um, it was just about the opportunity, and the opportunity came to to work with Chuggy, so that meant Sydney. So um, I probably. Uh, but it could have been New York or like I spent some time living in New York and made a bunch of great friends there. And um, like, I would have, I would have loved to kind of relocate a bit more permanently or LA, like London, like it kind of really doesn't matter. It's, it's just, it was more about what partnership and opportunity is going to give me um, a, a run at this from a career point of view that, might have otherwise taken me you know 10 years or 20 years um to do it kind of slowly and gradually or, or whatever it might be and and i think i think it's important to kind of surround yourself with successful people as well as like there's things that i learned from michael 10 years on without um you know just little ways that he behaves with people or relationships that he has or, or concepts about 
fairness or um, you know loyalty to to, to to certain people that might not be naturally built into to to me or our generations or whatever it is but for some reason he's successful and he might not be able to articulate exactly why but i think it's important to try and think about how people have managed to stay around uh, for as long as they have and i think that there's elements to that that you know you can kind of open yourself up to, to learning from those kind of people um then there's a lot of things you can pick up on and then you know that's it so yeah it could have been sydney melbourne Brisbane, whatever but um but yeah uh i think it's 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 more about the opportunity with the people that are there um and you don't have to partner with anyone it's just like maybe having a mentor that you kind of catch up with regularly and try and learn from but um yeah i also thought that yeah, at the time i was kind of djing and um working in another profession i had my own little label pr and, right you were mainly doing right yeah yeah i was a i was a physical therapist as well um oh wow i tried yeah um so a bit of a departure i think dedicating a hundred percent full-time to building a management company and a record label is yeah it takes it takes dedication and i always thought that i could split myself into a bunch of different roles um eventually it comes to a point where i think if you're going to really run at something um you know try and find a way and so working with Chuggy meant that I could get paid a full-time wage to do this and just dedicate myself to it, to getting better. Um, so, yeah. Andrew Stone, he's got a new label. It's not that new anymore. It's about a year old, give or take. City Pop Records. Yeah. Chuggy Music, Chug Music. Aria's the, uh, the performance was amazing. They've got to come through America because I'm I've been uh, seeing this band from afar, but I'm dying to see them live. The uh, yeah. Lime Cordial when when it's open to do so, I, I they've got to come play Nashville or something. And one of these uh, days, I was actually supposed to be in Australia with Michael Chase. I think in April we were planning on going down, and then it didn't happen. So uh, I've never been to Australia, but I've always wanted to go. So one of these days, I'm gonna have to come down and uh, and see what the See what the hubbub is all about. <laughs> please do, yeah, please do. I'd love to have you. Absolutely. And we'll be back as soon as it's as soon as it's open. I mean, we'll be back. Um, that's the that's the big question right now, um, obviously. But yeah, as soon as we can, um, we'll be we'll be there. What's it like over there? Because there, you guys, there was something I was like, are you guys doing shows now? Where Live Nation announced that there were they were doing shows that are like you guys are basically you guys are fine. Everything's cool in Australia. It's been pretty, um, you know, I think I think if there's a case for lockdown, it's the Australian case. Uh, and the people of Melbourne especially um, really did well to kind of get on top of things and made big sacrifices to do so. But now we have no cases in Australia. And um, the ones we do have are in hotel quarantine. And, um, you know, Australia's still being cautious about it, but we should be able to get to kind of 70% capacity venues like by early next year. Yeah, right. Um, and I think we, I think it'll be full, fully open by like mid next year. Um, not open to internationals until like that's properly rolled out. But I think, you know, fingers crossed that we can, we can, you know, make up for loss. Yeah. Do you look at like Americans where the, like the masks are so dividing? Do you just think we're crazy? Like how crazy it is how these masks have become political statements? 
I just really feel for everyone at the moment. I mean, everyone's so scared and they're just trying to figure out what's best and they're trying to maintain control over their lives in whichever way they can, whether it's wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. Or, and I, I think that there's just a real breakdown in kind of collective responsibility. But in a country like America, it's kind of built on, on yeah, like everyone around. It's, it's so big and so vast and so culturally diverse as well that there's always going to be differences of opinion and there's always going to be conflict with that type of thing. I think we're lucky in Australia that it's relatively manageable because it's a bit smaller, but I, I think all the wonderful things that make America America are the things that make it really hard for you guys right now in the, the divisions over masks, for instance, that, that exist. Um, but I think, you know, I think if everyone can kind of just, you know, stay safe if possible, um, you know, we'll get through it, but it's, it's, yeah, it's really, it's really, it really is a bit scary. I just hope people can kind of be kind to each other as, as much as possible over this, like, and kind of go take it easy on people, um, who don't necessarily comply with yeah, yeah, right. For whatever reason, you know, like the the, the rules, because they're just, just going to send everyone crazy and everyone's going to hate each other and it's just sad. Like, so, I mean, that's what we see. Um, but, you know, yeah, that's, you, uh, you might get a you might get good picture. I think you've got a good picture. Something like that. Oh, man. Andrew, thanks for taking the time, man. This was fun. And I'm, I'm always following what Chug Gee is doing and the label and the artists. And I'm always talking with Michael and, uh, we're always sending acts back and forth. And it's always fun to see we, every time your name comes up in the industry observer or wherever it does, I'm always, uh, I'm always fascinated by it. So thanks for like taking a, I feel like you're an honorary Australian with your knowledge of the Australian music business. That's a, I feel like it's one, cause it's funny because I feel like kind of growing up, kind of knowing the music scene in America, like I pretty much know the companies and the players and what's happening. And when I read billboards, like I sort of know what's happening. And then when I tune into like another market like Australia and I read like the Industry Observer or the Music Network or something, it's like this whole new world to me of these players that I've never even heard of. And that's like, that's exciting and fun for me. So good stuff. Well, hopefully get you out here soon. One of these days, Michael says there's great Chinese food out there. So I'm, uh, yeah, it's not the best. I'm, I'm going to come down for the Chinese food. That's what's, that's what's going to get me down there. That's the, uh, yeah. Stay well there and send send Michael a care package. Come on, he's, he's oh, all, right. all alone. He's he needs he has no he has nobody. He doesn't even have his dog. He's all alone. It's like <laughs> yeah, he likes to haul off. I get that. Something like that. Stay well, buddy. Right. Talk to you soon. Andrew Stone on the podcast. There you have it. Thanks for coming on, Andrew. Really appreciate it. That was that was so much fun. Can't wait to get out to Australia one of these days. Get the chance to do it in person. Looking forward to it. The Zach Kuhn Show is mixed by Sam Heyman, and our theme music is by Justin Johnson. If you want more content from us, you can subscribe to our newsletter at NashvilleBriefing.com, or you can follow us on socials, everything at Nashville Briefing. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. Bye.